0: How do we create a space for our children to get to know God in a way that focuses on trust instead of rigid rules. Hello, and welcome to the God's Story podcast. I'm Brent Siddle, and our very special guest on the podcast this time is pastor and parent, Meredith Miller, who's here to talk about her new book from Worthy Publishing in the States called Woven, Nurturing a Faith Your Kid Doesn't Have to Heal From. Meredith has over 20 years experience in children's ministry and curriculum. In 2019, she and her husband, Curtis, started Pomona Valley Church, a church on Zoom, that wants to, and I quote, Live the one another's neighbor well and do justice and eat. end of quote. For the five years prior to that she was curriculum director for the Children's Ministry at Willow Creek Community Church in Chicago. Since 2007 she's also been involved with the work of the Fuller Youth Institute and Meredith joins us now having had a very harried trip on the Los Angeles freeway. Uh, she's literally got home and rushed home to do this podcast, so we're very grateful Meredith hi.
1: Hello, and I'm very grateful as well. And our freeways are something, but the, it's a thing we get used to around LA. So I'm glad to be here too. Yes,
0: as I said to you before we started recording, I think I've been on the motorway in San Francisco and I've certainly experienced um, the motorways in London and, and Germany and Austria, but um, I've never been on the LA freeway, so my sympathies. And uh, I have to add an apology too from my co-host, um, Ian, who is in bed with the flu.
1: Oh, what a shame.
0: Poor old Rito. So let's pray for Rito. And um, anyway, this was a fascinating read, Meredith. So much to talk about. Can I ask you why so many of our young people think of their faith as legalistic or as a sort of legalistic rule keeping?
1: I love that question and would be glad to speak to it because we have been seeing research about this perception from young people for quite a long time actually some of the initial findings came from christian smith and his team of sociologists out of notre dame and they were published back in 2009 so this is not a new thing that we have had feedback on and largely what we see is that from the christian tradition there is a system that we raise young people in especially through curriculum sunday school resources family devotionals that emphasizes a lot of behaviors for kids Uh, and teens as well. We talk a lot about what they should do with a Bible story they've heard. We emphasize the way the Holy Spirit would grow fruit of the spirit, but we make that about being the character trait more than cultivating the soil for fruit to grow in. And a system then that focuses a lot on behavior, a young person often receives as their to-do list. I should be patient and kind and use good language And then they often along the way realize there's also a don't list and that they should make sure they maintain these two lists and because we have focused so much on the behaviors we believe are obedient or pleasing to god or fruit of the spirit or whatever we might call them when a young person grows up in that they often do not distinguish between the god that they are getting to know and the behaviors they are told to observe. And so there's there's legalism at the end of all of that.
0: Yes. I mean, you write about um, the fact that there's a problem with raising good kids.
1: And we all want good kids. Mine are eight and 10. I'd love for them to be good. I understand that. The problem becomes the system that might use the Bible in order to try and accomplish that goal, where <laughs> then I can very easily tell my kids to go be good because God wants them to, or the Bible says so.
0: Yes. How can we parent then from what you call, I think you call it a trust-based paradigm, don't you?
1: I do, because it focuses then on the idea that my goal as a parent who would like my kids to know Jesus is for my kids to get to know him, and as they do, discover his trustworthiness. And then I would be parenting by telling stories, both from scripture and from our faith community and from our family that highlight God's character and God's action and God's presence. I would be creating a family environment where we ask lots of questions, even if I don't have all the answers or even if they're not particularly answerable, to show that our faith can handle that and that our God subsequently can handle that. I would be thinking a lot about how our family practices apologies and mending and forgiveness as an imperfect reflection of perfect grace and so these things we build that are a family faith culture and the ways we go about talking about theology in the bible are mainly oriented towards i'd love for you to get to know this god i think if you have time to do that you'll discover this god to be trustworthy
0: Yes, the title of the book is Woven. And you, I mean, you use the image of the web, which I loved. How do I wonder, do we each weave our own webs of faith?
1: The idea of a spider's web is that they have these anchor threads that give it its most strength. And then there's internal ones that give it its texture and its structure and its distinct look. Anchor threads, in this guiding metaphor, are the attributes of God that we hold on to most tightly. And that would be true for any of us at any age that we get to know a God who is both loving and just a God who makes themselves known, but is also mysterious, uh, a God who is compassionate and with us and all these various things. These attributes are the anchors. And then within a spider's web, each and every one is accidentally is absolutely unique, like a snowflake. I did not know this until my three-year-old came home from preschool with a teacher who absolutely loved her. October spiders unit. (laughs) And that's the place where I think we start to recognize that our families are very different. Our kids are very different. We each individually are very different. And so the texture of the way we practice faith from the simplest things to when and how we might take time to read scripture and what kinds of additional commentaries are helpful to each of us or the various faith practices that we participate in, those can be unique to all of us. And yet they help us all to continue to grow and getting to know God and express that in the world.
0: Yeah, one of the things you write about is the Christian subculture or subcultures. I'm, I'm fascinated by what you said. and I agree with, with you, absolutely. Why are some of our Christian subcultures so narrow, do you think?
1: At least with children, I think some part of that is fear. We are afraid of what might happen if we release control. We are afraid of what might come up if we don't have a handle on everything. And if you come from the... Conservative sectors of Christianity that are specifically afraid of your child not making a decision by a certain age or expressing their faith in a specific way because God will somehow punish that child. That is a very hard thing to let go of and it will make your faith narrow because it is too risky to go wider.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, how important is it, do you think, to realize that our children's world, and I'm so aware of this, how important is it to realize that our children's world is so different from the one we may have grown up in?
1: It's incredibly important because it means that the life God might have for them will get expressed in these ways we've never particularly even seen or had to decide anything about. They have to make choices we've never had to try to make with growing brains. And we don't even know what it would feel like to be in that situation making that choice the simple one that we're all very aware of is the changing role of technology in a young person's life none of us had to make the same kinds of decisions about who to be behind a screen that our young people will have to make and these are decisions that largely they can hide from adults we will never know a whole lot of what they do in their digital world And yet we are the ones who are hopefully equipping them to make wise choices, to make good risk assessments, to be kind, but also we hope they'll share with us if they're on the victimized side of some of the unkindness. All of this is just something none of us had to do before. And if we are not aware of that and really compassionate towards it, I think we we will not be able to develop the kind of closeness we'd like with our young people to help them through.
0: Yeah. Can I ask you, because I know, um, Our listeners will want me to ask this question. How do you deal with social media in your household? Can I ask you that?
1: Oh, certainly. We are a relatively low engagement household ourselves. So uh, my children, like I said, are eight and 10, uh, which means they are going into third and sixth grade, which are both part of our elementary school system in our town. They do not have personal devices at this point, and we are not planning to get them any until they are also driving a vehicle. Right. And we've told okay. them that they can have a um, a phone when they drive. Our plan is to get them what, you know, what are now called dumb phones <laughs> for emergency purposes uh, when they drive. They can use our phones or tablets to play a small amount of um, screen games that we are aware of. We don't happen to have a video game console, but they can play it with friends at a house. Uh, But that whole part of a video game console now where they could be talking to real life people who might be strangers has made us a little more cautious and we've watched our own kids. Video games just don't bring out the best in them if they go on too long. So that's partially their personality. I don't think every kid is that way when they, you know, get into gaming and the way that hobby might go. And then, um, we, let's see, what else is relevant on the technology side? Uh, our kids do, when they have a device of ours, we have them use those in common areas. So they can't go into their own rooms with those devices. And I remember Dr. Chap Clark, who did research in a book called Hurt that came out in the early 2000s about teens, saying if I could get any one message through to parents, it would be, please do not put uh, access to the internet in a young person's bedroom. That Get them what they need for school, get them what they need to do, get them what they need for entertainment and connection. But- um and he said, like, I understand how hard that seems, how it just seems absolutely wild. But it, it was an early message for me. I was only 20-something at the time. And that's what we are trying as it comes to to digital use as well, is that it would happen in public. In the it conference. sounds
0: very wise to me. Now, what are, what are some of the ways we can craft a family faith culture then? How do we actually introduce our children to God?
1: So there are four big buckets that kind of help create this for us. One is rituals and traditions. The stuff that happens a lot like every day, especially in the flow of a day. This would be how I send my kids off to school each morning and sort of the last words I say to them or how I welcome them home, how we do bedtime meals, that kind of stuff. Traditions often are things like our birthdays, our holidays. There's also experiences that are part of a family faith culture, and those might not happen quite as frequently, but that would be like if your family does a certain kind of trip together or a reunion every so often, a place that is, you know, you visit now and again, a family camp relevant to many church traditions, there's relationships that we need in this faith culture that kids need a team around them sending core messages to them. And so you might have extended family that create that. It might be framily that you've invited in or from a church community. And then last is this idea that kids would need the chance to do Bible exploration. But I think that that is where there's a ton of freedom for it to look many different ways. So many of us might think it means we have to buy a children's picture Bible and read it every single night at bedtime, whether our kids like it or not, <laughs> or around the dinner table, whether they sit at the dinner table or not. Mine do not very easily. And I think if we widen that out to say there's lots of ways to tell stories to kids, mine like to hear me tell them to them. There are Bible story podcasts. There's any sort of avenue that helps invite them in. But those big markers are what create a family faith culture, the ways that we can invest in each of them.
0: Yes, I love the Bible stories when I was a kid, but um, family bedtime was always Dr. Seuss in the 70s, early 70s, late 60s when I was growing up. Um, it was the cat in the hat, please, every night. I mean, I'm. And I reread The Cat in the Cat and Hat the other day, and I was shocked. <laughs> I was surprised at how much really adult stuff there is in there that I, you don't see <laughs> until you're older. It's actually <laughs> so very true. good. It's a really a, a, a good little morality tale. It really is. Now, you write about the importance of There's so much I could ask you. There's so much great stuff in your book. But you write about the importance of spiral learning. Now, this is key, isn't it? What is spiral learning?
1: It's an educational theory about how you take on complex and nuanced topics. It's often applied to things like complex mathematics. How do you get a kid from groups of tens all the way to calculus? But it works with many kinds of learning. And what is nuanced and complex, like trying to know God and understand scripture? And so the idea would be that on purpose, a teacher starts small and simple, and they keep it short because they will circle back around to that idea relatively soon to add something new to it, another small piece that builds on what was done before, and then they circle around again. And so this spiraling around an idea lets every single lesson, so to speak, even if that is a more informal family conversation, cover one small thing that connects to the things before, and then you do it over and over again. This helps us if any of us have come from like a one-and-done kind of faith idea where if I tell a kid a Bible story, I've got like a, you know, 10-point checklist of every detail they should memorize by the end, and it makes the story take 35 minutes. Spiral learning keeps things focused on one true something at a time with the intention of purposefully repeating it over and over again in order for that complexity and nuance to develop over time.
0: Yeah, okay. Um, I'm a parent. I want to have faith conversations or I'm having faith conversations with my child or my children as we're going along during the day. How can we keep these conversations short and focused?
1: One thing would be to figure out where your kid has the most openness to even having the conversation in the first place. For many families, a car ride, if it's just to run a simple errand, that takes many of us around 10 minutes. And that works pretty nicely in our kids' attention span that we talk about one something in the car. And then we're good for now, but for different kids, it might be different times. And often it starts with seeing what is already coming up for them or connecting something that is on their radar with something, you know, about God or faith. So I heard a great example from a mom the other day whose kid was building Lego and they created their little Lego thing and said to their sibling, look, I made mommy. <laughs> and the little sibling was like, oh, it's mommy and Lego and she caught in the second and said i love that you made me out of lego do you know what the bible says god made you out of dirt can you believe that the bible said that it was as if god formed you out of dirt and then breathed on you to make you alive it's almost like every time you breathe god is right inside of you isn't that cool yeah. and her kid took a huge breath and let it out and went yeah i feel it
0: <laughs> yes a moment and of that, tr- uh, yes
1: and that was the end of the conversation yeah, whole moment she had one good sentence, and yeah. then they were done.
0: Uh, you, you write about Bible teaching and and different ways we can approach it, and I love this too. Um, and you, I think you said that um, emphasizing or overemphasizing application in our Bible teaching can lead to moralism. Now, could you expand on that, please?
1: Yes. Those of us who do church curriculum, and I was in that space for a long, long time, we used to write every single Bible lesson towards an application a kid could do, usually within the next couple of days. And so if it is David and Goliath, then you are going to be brave like David. And we want you to identify an opportunity to be brave and tell us what you're going to do like tomorrow. (laughs) And so everything became about being like David and exemplifying David's bravery. If we can flip to say that God is also a character in these stories, in fact, the main one, who is God in David and Goliath? Well, David notices how God is with him. In fact, that's where the courage seems to come from. David notices something about God of Israel as compared to the God of the Philistines. And there's something about God's uniqueness that is coming up. And so it's not that David is uniquely courageous, he's allowed to also be scared, (laughs) because that's what any human would be in the situation. But there's a chance to see God as the main character. And that allows for people who don't always have to get it right. When we teach to the application, it often sends a message to a kid that they need to be that thing we've highlighted, or they've gotten it wrong, so to speak. What if I'm not brave tomorrow? What if something scary comes my way in my nine-year-old world, and I can't pull through with the bravery my church told me to have the day before? Well, then I think I've messed it up.
0: Yes, and this is what you call God-centered storytelling, and I love this. Why is it important to make God the center of the story?
1: Well, it's to what you said that the opposite model often does devolve into a moralistic takeaway pretty quickly. And... When we have a God-centered storytelling model that highlights God as the main character, not only does that help a kid get to know God, because in any given story, God is probably being many things. And when we pick just one, that's our spiral learning idea. And then we can tell a new attribute in the future time, but also it lets us see how the humans in scripture are engaging with very, very relevant questions to our world today. They are wondering if God will actually be with them. Like God has promised. They are, Um, wondering if God can be trusted to come through. They are navigating uncertainty and futures that aren't known. And when kids get to see how God is faithful through that, how God does not give up on us through that, how God's grace takes shape in that, that can help them say that they can grow into being a human as well, that it will be okay, not because they are so good, but because of who God is. It -hmm. makes grace far more real, which... A lot of the research on young people and moralism emphasizes how little they really know grace. It's not something that's very real for a lot of them. When they start to mess up that do and don't list, they think God really likes them less.
0: I think that's true of all of us, isn't it? And grace is so hard for us to understand because it runs against our our natures. Um, Okay. I'm teaching, um, or I wanted to talk to my uh, child about the creation story uh, or the creation account. How do we spiral? The creation narrative? What do we do? How do we make God the center of it?
1: So we can start with something as simple as, God made everything. Yay. And then (laughs) we just, I know, but it starts, it really does start that small. That's true. That's true. And so then it's going out into the world and seeing things and going, God made that. Yay. God made that. Yay. It's just enjoying creation and connecting back to, isn't that neat? The next cycle around can include God made things different on purpose. Isn't it neat how this is not the same as that and this is not the same as that and you are not the same as your friends? That's really cool that God made things different on purpose. And then one might spiral around the creation narrative to say God gave humans a special job in creation. Isn't that neat how God made humans God's representatives and So what might that mean for you as someone who is made in God's image? What might that mean about how we treat others? What might that mean about how we care for creation? So now we can spin off into questions of one's own identity as an image bearer, or we could spin off into a conversation about caring for each other because we're all image bearers, or we can spin off into a creation care and stewardship conversation. So all of that can flow out of this image of God peace of the story. And then when I get all the way to high school, I can start talking about the way that the author tells a story and then the scientific world tells a story. And isn't it neat how we each are bringing something to the table about who God is and how God does things and being able to unpack those.
0: Yeah. Are there some uh, biblical parts of the Bible that are better suited to particular ages?
1: Oh, absolutely. Because we both know that the Bible is not a children's book and the ancient Near Eastern authors told some stories that I am not keen for a six year old to hear. And so I think when we find that there are stories of scripture that aren't age accessible we skip them and save them until they could be understood. And so I am of the opinion that um, Abraham and Isaac, the request to sacrifice Isaac, is a story that needs to be saved until an older age to make any sense. I think that Noah's Ark is a very difficult story to um, tell to kids. You, You can make it real cutesy when they're young, but then they're gonna catch up on the rest of the plot and you're gonna be in a little trouble. So if you can save that until they're a little bit older. Uh, I think that a lot of the battle stories, we've assumed kids will like them. Oh, wow, it's a battle and they fight. But again, to your earlier point about understanding the world our kids are in, our kids are more attuned to the violence of the world than we might have been before. They are practicing lockdown drills, and we were not. Perhaps those battle stories we thought were so adventurous, maybe we don't tell so many of those. With so much intensity as if it's a movie and isn't that entertaining because perhaps that might actually hit our kids differently to think that god asked for conquering in a way that is really culturally embedded and so i think there's quite a few along the way that we find ourselves saying well i'm going to save that for later on
0: (laughs) i've often wondered how i would teach leviticus is it leviticus 10 clean and unclean animals to children. It could be quite fun, actually. I've never tried it, but there we go. <laughs> Maybe I should never should. Um, now, praying. People are going to want to know your thoughts about how we can, how we can encourage uh, children to pray and pray with our children.
1: When I talk to kids about how we're going to pray, I often say, prayer just means we're talking to God with our normal words and our normal voice about whatever is actually on our minds. And so we do that and keep it short. If you have a kid who is maybe age four and under, praying one sentence or repeat after me kinds of prayers are a great place to start, that we just offer those lines and close out quickly. I think also being mindful that many kids do not want to pray aloud for longer than we might think they would. And it doesn't mean anything is wrong with your kid. You can keep being the one to pray aloud for them, um, maybe into an older age than you expected. and. I think sometimes you could also do like a fill-in-the-blank kind of prayer. Hey, we're going to say thanks to God for friends. So I'll start and say, Dear God, we want to say thanks so much for these friends in our life. Thank you for, and then you invite your kid to just finish the sentence. We don't need all of our prayers to always be long or sound very spiritual. And it's okay for that to be more about building the rhythm than about expressing every thought and feeling in your child's little heart. The... Protestant communities I come from put a lot of emphasis on um, spontaneous emotional prayers that like spilled your whole heart out, and then kind of wanted kids to practice that early on. It wasn't very realistic to how a kid experiences the world. But the habit, the habit is the thing.
0: So yeah, we that, connect
1: with God as a person.
0: Yes, very good advice. Yes. Last question, I think Meredith. Birthdays, I've got to ask you about. It. Why, do you, why do you advise parents to go big for birthdays. Why wouldn't you want to go big for birthdays, I say? I, mean, but-
1: <laughs> I, I maybe that's just because I love it. Yeah. Because there is a whole theological exercise that could be done around the celebration of a birthday, about the way that it honors a kid as someone God made, honors your kid as a gift to your family and how grateful you are to be their parent. It's a way to celebrate a kid's uniqueness. They always want something about their celebration to be a reflection of something they're interested in or the people they're connected to. It can be a chance to remind you that you're part of a community. We often gather for a birthday and you can connect to your kid all of these people who love you and celebrate you because God's put us in community. And so it isn't about spoiling or being materialistic. It's about doing the stuff that leaves that kid so sure of their belovedness, because there's just no such thing as celebrating a child on God's behalf too much. And a birthday's a wonderful space to make that happen.
0: Do you do unbirthdays? I have a friend who does, you know, you remember the Mad Hatter's Tea Party, which is, oh, is that much. the un, unbirthday in Lewis Carroll? Yes. yes. Oh, oh sh- She's a great believer in having unbirthdays. I think she has at least two or three a year. Um, simply because people can't all gather at, at, on on her birthday. And so Absolutely. we have unbirthdays. So we do, we do it in stages. So she gets about three birthdays. I think that's...
1: I think it's a brilliant idea. And if I you do. have... A kid who is unfamiliar, you can always just play them just that clip of like the Disney Alice in Wonderland when they sing the song, yes. and then declare the day to be the very merry unbirthday, a very a very go. merry
0: unbirthday or a very happy unbirthday, whatever it is to exactly. me, to me, yes, absolutely,
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs>
0: Anyway, Meredith Miller, look, it's been fabulous talking to you. Meredith Miller, who uh, has this new book out from Worthy Publishing in the States called Woven, Nurturing a Faith Your Kid Doesn't Have to Heal From. I meant to ask you about your church on Zoom, 2019. That was a bit of foresight, setting up a church on Zoom just prior to COVID. My goodness me.
1: Well, it actually, we were not in 2019. We had six months as a brand new little church where we had dinner in our backyard. And then we pivoted like everybody else in March of 2020. But what we found is that we were able to stay there. So we still are a church on zoom and have sort of settled into the model, even though many other communities have gone into a uh, more of the live space, but we we were able to transition a little better because we were very casual and interactive and sort of already b- broken up for conversation and so when we needed to be digital like everyone else we were already kind of set up for people to continue to connect we were already preaching kind of short and some of those kinds of things and so we did not have foresight we just had a great group that was very willing to make the change when we all needed to
0: sounds great as we all needed to and um yeah, I think it was a great opportunity, and and uh, digital is often, these days, the way to go, I think, in some ways.
1: There's something about not needing to drive somewhere and having <laughs> your coffee maker right behind <laughs> you, and you could still be in your jammies, and yet you're talking to people, and we're sharing stories, and it's just been really lovely. Yeah, And then when absolutely. we do get together, it's because we want to eat.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, very important. Eating is very important in, in ministry, I believe a lot of a lot of ministry you can get to know do a lot of ministry over food it's wonderful um anyway there we are meredith miller uh, thank you i will let you go and thank you to our creative team at liquid edge who sponsor this podcast and who take care of things behind the scenes meredith thank you so much and blessings with the los angeles traffic
1: <laughs> thank you very much i'm so glad i had the chance to talk to you
0: thank you we hope you've enjoyed this episode of the god story podcast To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating and leave a review. This will help more people discover God's story for themselves. If you'd like to get in touch or learn more, please visit godstorypodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. That's godstorypodcast.com.